0: Welcome to The Jewish Diasporist, a podcast exploring the political, social, and cultural implications of life in diaspora. We are your hosts, Ben Yanowitz
1: and Zach Smarin. Two conflicts have recently captured global attention, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the escalation between the Israeli government and Hamas. However, another conflict has not received anywhere near the same level of coverage.
0: On September 19th and 20th, after a nine-month siege of the autonomous Armenian Republic of Dagorno-Karabakh, the Azerbaijani military attacked Armenia, seizing the region to be formally dissolved at the beginning of 2024. Due to threats of genocide, over 100,000 Armenians have fled the region in the ensuing weeks. This is an ethnic cleansing, and most of the world has been silent. There is much we don't know about the history, politics, and culture of the various peoples that inhabit these lands. Yet there are unique Jewish communities with deep roots across the Caucasus.
1: There are many perspectives from which we might approach these subjects. For our first discussion, we reached out to two Czech Jewish student organizers, Emma and Bruno, who happened to visit Azerbaijan just as war broke out. They visited Baku, some of the other largest cities, and the Red Village, the only locality outside of Israel and the United States of a majority Jewish population, sometimes also referred to as the last shtetl.
0: Our conversation touched on several major themes that we have not yet explicitly discussed on our podcast, including authoritarianism, nationalism, and militarism, none of which will be present in Olam Haba, the world to come.
1: We also recorded an additional anecdote from our guest's time in the Red Village, which reveals an interesting dynamic about the community's relationship with the wider Jewish diaspora. This is our first piece of Patreon bonus content, which you can access for as little as one dollar per month. For those not donating, we will make it available on our public channels in the next few months.
0: Unfortunately, we have chosen to delay part two of our discussion with Habib, as the situation in Israel-Palestine has been evolving and escalating daily, and we want to continue to release timely and relevant content.
1: We will return to the Caucasus soon, as we have another interview lined up with someone whose family comes from the Red Village, and perhaps others down the road, as we hope to continue exploring this fascinating part of the world. We hope you enjoy.
2: Hello, I'm Emma Ginsberger. I am 21 years old. I am a student. I am currently studying Middle Eastern studies with focus on Iran and Persian language. I am also focusing on Jewish studies, but only as a minor. I am the current president of Czech Union of Jewish Students.
3: So I'm Bruno. I'm 24 years old. I study economics in Germany. I was born in Prague. I'm also considering myself to be a Czech Jew. I'm a member of the Czech Union of Jewish Students, but my parents and my family are originally from Ukraine. Since I found out that I'm Jewish, I always was curious about the origins of my family, where it came from, how was the life in the Soviet Union back then. And for that reason, I'm kind of fascinated with the whole post-Soviet space today. And I want to visit it and travel around it. And that's why I'm trying to tick off every post-Soviet country, you know, as my travel bucket list. So yeah, it was time to visit Azerbaijan after visiting Georgia, which was amazing. Armenia, the last country that I needed to visit to finish off the whole Caucasian trip was Azerbaijan.
0: Just out of curiosity, Bruno, when did your family leave Ukraine?
3: Like most Jewish families and or most people who left the Soviet Union were in the 90s just after the fall. So suddenly you you were able to move out. They chose Czech Republic, Prague specifically, because my aunt was already living there. She married a Czech Jew and she could actually travel out of the Soviet Union or move out even before it collapsed because for family reasons to reunite families, it was possible. And you know, when the border came down, the whole family moved there.
1: I definitely would want one day to really dive into the Czech Jewish community don't know really too much about it even though I grew up very very close to the Czech border I feel this kind of connection also due to the fact that I think the situation of the Czech Jewish community is quite similar to the Polish Jewish community a community that has grown recently in size but still one that has a lot of people that have some kind of Jewish ancestry that they may or may not wish to connect with which is this sort of situation that you have in a lot of post-eastern bloc countries but today I specifically wanted to speak to you because of your recent trip to Azerbaijan. With the conflict that's been going on there, I understand that you did not go there as a sort of disaster tourism that you were attracted necessarily by the fact that there was a war going on there. It happens to align with your visit. So where did you go to Azerbaijan? What did you want to see there?
2: I think this was something we both had on our bucket list for quite a while. We both have our own reasons. I was texting Bruno when he was in Morocco, and we were talking about the places where we wanted travel to and I was like, I really want to travel to Azerbaijan. I am interested in the country because I study Middle Eastern studies. It's closely connected to Iranian and Persian history. It's also very important for Jewish history. We both knew a lot about the mountain Jews, but we, well, we knew some of them personally, but none of the mountain Jews who are still living there. And the culture is fascinating. I would say that, like, mountain Jews are something like a subculture culture of Judaism. We were texting and we were like, okay, let's go to Azerbaijan together. And we booked a flight and we actually managed to plan the whole trip. The conflict was obviously something we have not planned to encounter. It basically emerged on the day when we were supposed to fly to Azerbaijan. So we were scared that our flight would get cancelled, but it didn't. We were actually flying from Poland, from Warsaw. We were able to get there safely. And after 24 hours, it was over.
3: (laughs) Been just fascinating with the life in the post-Soviet republics and I wanted to visit each and every one of them. I've been to Ukraine, I've been to Moldova, and I've been working my way through the Caucasus, which is a very fascinating region. It started in Georgia. I've been treated very, very well in Georgia. Probably in the best country I've visited so far. Sorry, Israel. Um, and then I went to Armenia, which I found the people there were even like treating me like one of their own. And it was really hard to get inside of their society and uh, feel like accepted and then I just wanted to uh, complete the whole list with Azerbaijan and then, then it was just a matter of finding time and money and uh, good people to travel with so I texted Emma I texted also two of my classmates four of us that went there and I wanted to visit the red village to get to know the mountain Jews because the story of the mountain Jews that place almost like reached the mythical proportion of some, some magical place where a lot of famous Jewish people originated from it was just fascinating and yeah the conflict I uh, just remember like we were very nervously sitting on the train to Warsaw and time getting these messages. Guys, like there's a war going on. And I've been reading about the buildup of the military on the border with the separatist republic of Artsakh or Nagorno-Karabakh. And I've been thinking, uh, is it safe to fly? Isn't it safe to fly? But I thought, "Ah, come on, I cannot, I cannot not go. And of course, the day we were supposed to fly, it started out. And I remember just my friend like telling me, Man, if I'm going to sit in that airplane and look out the window and see one rocket just flying at us, I'm not going to look at that rocket anymore. I'm just going to look at you. So (laughs) that that was uh, his commitment. But everything ended up being okay we didn't feel like we were in danger we felt very much as if the war takes place at some different distant place except for some other cultural bizarre stuff that happened that we can talk about later maybe
2: and if i might add the most stressful thing was actually our parents and our families calling us every hour if we're sure that we actually want to go and if we don't want to go rather back (laughs) that was probably the most stressful part for me that was really making me Uncomfortable.
1: (laughs) I wouldn't necessarily blame them, but I can understand. I can understand why that could be quite difficult. So tell us a little bit more about the Red Village. I mean, it's become almost this sort of part of deep Jewish law that this is the only locality where there is a Jewish majority apart from Israel and the United States. And I understand that both of you have these different perspectives that you can come from. How did you find it? How did you relate it to, Emma, your perspective of the wider Middle East and the region? And then I'm going to ask you, Bruno, about how you related it in the post-Soviet context.
2: If I might start from like a wider perspective, for me, what's very interesting about Azerbaijan, as a such, as a country, as a culture, is that it's something in between of both Soviet culture mentality, then you have the Turkic element, you have the Islamic element, most of the population are Muslim, obviously, but Shihim, Muslim. And then you have the Persian influence, and you can just feel all these elements intertwined, it makes this very interesting mixture, whether that be their culture, mentality, or even how the country looks. And I feel like that was something very, very unique, something I have never experienced before. And this Interesting mosaic of different cultural influences was something I have felt very strongly also in the Red Village because you can tell that these people are post-Soviet. When we were trying to talk to them, the only language we were able to communicate in was Russian. We tried a little bit in Hebrew, that was okay on like the most basic level, but you couldn't properly talk. We obviously don't speak nor Azeri, neither Turkish. So that was an an option for us. And these people were very, very interesting because you could feel that they are not like European Jews. The village was very very big there were the old elements but then there were these huge mega mansions which were very over the top they were really huge and modern and this just made really interesting mosaic what we were surprised about was that even though the village was big and you could see jewish elements all around like every building we've encountered had a mezuzah on the door Or there was uh, Magen David on the roof or somewhere and there were so many Jewish elements and motifs but the village was almost empty there weren't that many people and the people we have met they were mostly old (laughs) they were very bored they usually didn't have a job they were just wandering around and they were looking for some interaction for something fun to do so they were very approachable and we actually managed to get into one old couple's house, which is a very interesting story. But my biggest takeaway from the Red Village is how rich the history is. But even though they are very well integrated into the Muslim majority population, they still managed to keep their Jewish identity, their Jewish traditions, and the kind of Judaism that we had the opportunity to get to know there is very different from the Judaism we know either here in Europe or American Jews or even Middle Eastern Jews. They have their own elements and customs and rituals which are completely unique.
0: Could you give us an example of a specific custom you might see that you might not see elsewhere?
2: So, for example, when we went to the Jewish cemetery, all the graves had faces and like photographs pictured on the gravestones, which is something I have never seen. And it didn't look very Jewish to me. This was something which was on every gravestone around the Jewish cemetery. And the Jewish cemetery was huge and it didn't have any structure. Like usually when you go to a cemetery, you have tiny paths to walk on or something. But this was very randomly built. It didn't even look like someone was taking care of it. Also, it was completely open. There was like no guard or anyone. We just got in. I think it was just random Monday and we just tried to open the door and it was open. It was very interesting.
3: What I could say about the cemetery is that the doorway even didn't look like a doorway you can use. When we were looking for the cemetery, first of all, it's on a hill and when you come from the top and there's like a brick wall and like a random small metal door that looks like it's been closed since it's been built (laughs) and I thought okay that's it I guess we can't go in and it was actually Emma who just said let's try it and we were all shocked that the door just opened. We had a walk there. There's actually one keeper of the cemetery I remember him staring us down from far like it was quite scary He, he looked like a zombie from afar like just staring at us and I started to wave and I came to him like and he asked me if we're Jewish and I said yes we're Jewish, so I said, okay, if you're Jewish, then it's okay. He just showed us who lies where, but he couldn't explain us, I remember asking, he couldn't explain us why there are faces of people on each and every gravestone, and it's something, I think, it's my hypothesis, I don't know if it's correct, it's something they just appropriated from the local Azerbaijani culture because they have them as well on their gravestones, all the faces of every people, especially soldiers which they regard as martyrs. It's another completely different topic. We've seen outside of the cemetery, there was a little shrine to fallen Jewish soldiers who fell for the Battle of Karabakh. They had also like their Azerbaijani flags on them with the Islamic crescent. We found that pretty peculiar. But when it comes to Cuba and the Red Village or Cuba, in my local synagogue here in Germany in Hanover, we have two newcomers who are both Azerbaijani and one of them is from Cuba. And he told me about this place and Red Village is part of the Cuba city. For so me to visit it and that that's the place where the mountain Jews are located in. We went there on our trip on our very last day, actually. We stayed there the whole day from early morning till the very late at night. And from there, we took a car back to the airport. And we had two locals that we spent
0: time with there.
3: One of them was a mountain Jew. The other one was a Dagestani.
2: Yes, that's why he didn't mind Armenians. Yeah.
0: On that point, in our last episode, we talked a lot about tribalism and the big issue of people being closed off to people not in their in-group, this like in-group, out-group distinction that really limits people's ability to identify and embrace care and solidarity for people outside of the community they see themselves a part of. And being in Azerbaijan in this particular period, when we had a a war against Armenia in 2020, and then you have the nine-month siege of nagorno karabakh or Artsakh, and you had the war that happened right before you got there. Could you say a little bit about the attitude towards Armenians that you experienced through your interactions with Azerbaijani and people living within that country?
3: Before we started recording, I told you, I use the method of Socratic irony, basically playing dumb or asking provocative questions in a way that's innocent and getting pensioners and old babushkas to talk to me. And uh, usually what I use as icebreaker is just ask them if they remember the Soviet Union, how was the life in the Soviet Union back then? I asked this every person that we've met or befriended, all of them exclusively said we lived fantastically during the Soviet Union because for them, they lived together in one country with Armenians. There were Armenians that married Azerbaijanis, there were Azerbaijanis that got married to Armenians and for Armenians actually, it was a highest honour to allow to get married with an Azerbaijani or so they've told me at least. And I asked them, if you lived in peace back then what changed now? I don't understand could you explain? And then we got a variety of answers. Something that one guy that we've met on a big at the Caspian Sea he told me yeah, they got spoiled as a nation spoiled as in when a milk gets spoiled they went bad or if an apple gets rotten they became rotten as a nation and I asked them okay but what caused this if you lived in peace back then and a lot of the times they answered russia that armenians got rotten through russia or russia made them evil somehow russia is not popular in azerbaijan whatsoever there was one guy the last guy that we've met the guy from kuba who's actually from dagestan who really really liked russia and he was the only guy in azerbaijan that we talked to that had nothing bad to say about armenians all other azerbaijani treated armenians or talked about armenians as uh, people in europe talk about jews or talked about jews back then. One guy that was probably one of the friendliest guys that we've met in the city of Shiki, he called them like dirty and not a nice nation and that they should be all killed. Just straight up like this. When you asked him about Jewish people, he was very nice. But Armenians to them was what Jewish people are were to a lot of people in Europe back then. That was my impression from these conversations.
2: I noticed one interesting pattern, and that was that most Azerbaijanis are not very pro-Russian because they are mad at Russia for supporting Armenia and creating the conflict in their view, whereas the Azari Jews, they are very pro-Russian. Also, when we were interacting with the local Jews, and I think that we managed to get pretty close because we've been invited to their homes twice in Baku and once in the Red Village, I feel like the Jews also didn't mention anything bad about the Armenians. They either didn't tell us or they didn't care. The big difference was that the Muslim Azaris had sympathy towards Ukraine and they perceived Ukraine as the attacked country which has the right to defend itself and they perceived Russia and Putin as something bad and imperialistic whereas the Jews didn't share this view at all. All the Jews we've met were very pro-Russian.
3: Also Emma, remember that one story I think that made the biggest impression on you when we were sitting with Elchin which was a guy that we met in Sheki who was the whole day with us. We befriended him. He guided us through the local market and then he took us to see some different stuff and invited us for tea I invited him for lunch like to show us a good place where he as a local guy local pensioner eats and during the meal he just randomly took out his phone and I remember Emma's face very well and just started showing a video that was sent to him from his friends showing video of dead Armenian soldiers who just had like a hole in their head and it was like he showed it off proudly
2: but it was like in real time he was like this is what my friends just sent me and he showed us the video but it was very, very brutal and something you may get to see on Telegram accounts but not on regular social media. He showed it to us in the middle of lunch. He was laughing. It was very clear that he didn't perceive Armenians as equal human beings. And I think he even said something along the lines that Armenians are not humans, they are animals or something like that.
0: Wow. Wow. That's really dark. Um, I'm personally extremely anti-nationalist. I see that sort of groveling and the suffering of the outgroup of the other. One could argue intrinsically a part of nationalism as an ideology and how that gets developed because you can't really have an understanding of who's in your community if you don't also have an understanding of who's out of your community in the national sense. And like the Middle East is such an interesting region because you have so many, especially the Caucasus and the way that that is part of the region, really, because you do have such dominant nationalism. It's a place that since 1917, since the carving up of the Ottoman Empire, has gone through colonialism overt direct European control of large sections of it. You had the Russian Empire and then the Soviet Union controlling the Caucasus as well. And especially in the post-collapse of the Soviet Union, you just have the hegemony of national ideas and how that shapes Geopolitics, And I think Azerbaijan has a really interesting and kind of weird position within it because you did say how Armenia is like associated with Russia in a sense, which is weird because at the same time, Russia has not helped Armenia.
3: The connection between russia and armenia also comes from the fact that more armenians live in russia than in armenia yeah
0: the armenian diaspora is a very interesting diaspora community that is not really tied to land in a way that i think it actually has a lot of similarities to jewish diaspora and we could do a whole other episode on that and i think we would love to at some point but i think yeah you're right it's interesting the way that that sort of politics gets played out because just having a large number of armenians in russia helps create this association between the two countries and how that plays out. Azerbaijan and its situation between Turkey and its very close relationship with Turkey, which is one of the dominant imperial powers within the region, and what they're doing in Syria, their bombing of the Kurds in the last few weeks, and how that's escalated right alongside what Azerbaijan did in Artsakh and the Rona Karabakh and Armenia. It's just a very difficult reality because you have so much tribalism in a region, but at the same time, we have to think about how can we actually make peace between all these diverse peoples. As you said, in the Soviet Union, you did have peace between peoples. And it's a question of like, how do we bring people together without also like creating new systems of domination over other peoples? And it's difficult because you do have just a new period of imperialism that is really dominant. And the question then is how can we actually build relationships across the region and what role might Jews play within that? Because Azerbaijan in the last offensive they launched against Artsakh did get a number of their weapons from Israel, which I think is a very problematic exchange because then you had Jews in armenia getting attacked there was a synagogue that was vandalized and it was vandalized because of that relationship where they're saying oh israel's supporting azerbaijan so we're gonna blame it on the jews that goes all to say like there's a lot of contradictions within jews position within the region and i would just wanted to bring that up because i think it's interesting and i'd like to hear what you guys think about how jews might be able to build connections for peace across this difficult and complex area
2: i would like to comment on what you said in regards to the Armenia-Russian relationships, think that you have to take into account that the Republic of Azerbaijan has become increasingly pro-Western in terms of being ally with Israel, Turkey, the United States, the later two are NATO members. Basically, Armenia didn't have any other choice than cooperating with Russia, and even though Russia is not really helping by providing military equipment or being involved in the conflict in like an explicit way. They are still very supportive of Armenians and there is this allyship. So I think you have to take this into account. And Azerbaijanis are, of course, very well aware of this fact. And that's why they don't have the best relationship towards Russia. In regards to what you said, when it comes to nationalism, I think that nationalism is a very toxic trait or pattern but you have to consider that we were traveling to a dictatorship I wasn't sure if I I should mention it here or not but if you know where you're traveling to you have to be very careful with your words with how you phrase things with how you think and when you live in a country like Azerbaijan they have no free access to media people who are either in the opposition or journalists who write critical articles about the current government, they get into jail. They get persecuted. To be honest, the indoctrination of the regime really gets to you. And I don't mean to like legitimize anything, but I'm just trying to explain that when you travel to countries like these, you have to have certain sympathy towards the people because we were there only for a week and we felt how the indoctrination was getting to us. Let me give you an example. When you go to either Baku, Ganja, Sheki, wherever, you are probably standing on Aliyev Street. Aliyev is the president of Azerbaijan. Then you look in front of you and there is Aliyev Library. You look to the left there is Aliyev Cultural Center. You look to the right, there is Aliyev Gardens, I don't know. When you ride a car and you are driving along the highway, you either see billboards with Aliyev or his father, or you see the dead markers who had died in the previous wars which Azerbaijan had with Armenia. I don't mean to legitimize this, but if you were born into a regime like this, it gets into your head. It shapes your whole mindset. Like we had rented a car and we were driving. When we turned on the radio, the only songs we were able to listen were either Azerbaijan or Karabakh, Azerbaijan. And after a few days, we caught ourselves. We are singing it long because it was just so catchy. And we were there for a week. Imagine you were born into a Regime like this, so I think that if you want to travel into countries like this, you have to have certain level of understanding of what this indoctrination means, and you have to have an open mind, and you can't be completely judgmental. Because we were privileged to be born into a free state where we have free access to media, we were very well educated, we do have some level of critical thinking, but to be honest honest, I can't tell you with complete honesty that if I was born in Azerbaijan, or I don't know, Iran or China, I don't know what my views would be. I don't know if I wouldn't be a nationalist. I don't know if I wouldn't share the opinions of the regime, if that's what I would be taught my whole life. So honestly, I don't think that from the Jewish perspective, You can do nothing. That's my brutally honest take. If you want to travel there as a foreigner, you have to have an open mind and you can't judge the people because if you do, you wouldn't be able to, the experience wouldn't be pleasant for you nor for them. I can
3: also add that I understood you're also going to interview Yana, who has uh, mountain Jewish roots. When I talked with her about, you know, going to Azerbaijan, and I said, I don't know, Yana, it's like a dictatorial regime. She was like, no, it's not a dictatorial regime. It's like a very, very authoritarian one. And okay, and I backed off. But after spending a week there, I can tell you, and I can be very, very honest about this, that regime is almost cartoonishly dictatorial. I was shocked to learn how politicized the institution were also the religious institutions. When visiting a synagogue, Jewish people there, they have no other choice than be in line with that regime. When we visited the Sephardic synagogue, the very first thing you see is a huge portrait of President Aliyev and his father and all the martyr Jewish martyrs that died there. And you know, and you have like these written notes there, you know, like how this was funded at the expense of the regime and our glorious leader, blah, blah, blah. And it's like this, it says these words, and it sounds almost like a paradigm of itself but it's their reality. Politization of religious institutions, politizations of the Museum of Mountain Jews, the same story. Our glorious leader funded this. Our state allowed this to happen. You have no choice then to succumb to that. Also the fact that there are literally policemen guarding the building inside that building. You have basically the messengers of the regime in your house watching over you for your own safety, but also, you know, to make sure that you don't, you know, go off track that's a massive difference. The second difference also is I wanted to point out how Armenians treat or think of Jewish people and Azerbaijanis and how Azerbaijanis think of Armenians. I've covered how Azerbaijanis think of Armenians already it's quite brutal but my experience in Armenia is inverted I've met a diverse group of people there from soldiers to you know pensioners to students to activists and not a single one of them thought about Azerbaijani people as being like a lower level of culture. Most of the times i heard we know that there are people too we know that they live in a dictatorship they have no other choice than to think about us their animals because armenians regard themselves a democracy now it's not a thriving democracy but it's still a regime where opposition leaders just got a chance to govern i think since the revolution in 2018 so they have a let's say much more broader understanding of or more abstract understanding of the conflict and are able to think more critically and Let's say uh, there is less ideology involved.
0: You know, I was just thinking how the history of Azerbaijan is a really interesting one because it's only been independent since, what, early 90s? As far as I understand, it was attacked by, or there was a war with Armenia very early within that. Do you know what year that was?
3: When Soviet Union fell apart, 15 new countries were created and every country was suddenly in war at some point in the 90s. I don't know if the war between Armenia and Azerbaijan started in 91 or 92 but it was very early on. 91. And the same thing happened in Georgia, same thing happened with Moldova, same thing happened with Kyrgyzstan and many, many other countries.
0: Yeah, and I think it's interesting because as far as I understand, Azerbaijan lost that initial war. Yes. And I think the way that sort of shapes the national narrative that's told, especially in a regime like this that has such a dominant voice within the educational institutions, all the institutions that create an ideology within the people's consciousness are politicized, and therefore people... very early are taught that oh we were attacked by Armenia I mean I think what you said Emma was interesting about how they blame Russia for spoiling Armenia I don't even know what to make of it but it is the narrative that's told to them from a young age that like instills this fear and hatred of Armenians just as the other people that are told as the other within that narrative of the history they're told of their country at least in the modern period and I think it's really important to think about how trauma informs people's worldviews when it comes to Seeing in-group and out-group distinctions And fear for the other But I think it's also important to think about How can we actually get back to That view of recognizing our common humanity Despite these differences And actually by embracing these differences And recognizing that like cultural and communal diversity Is really beautiful And the world is so much richer for it
3: I just want to tell you that what you talked about, Ben, today I made an Instagram story about, you know, reflecting in the importance of defeat and uh, victory and how it, uh, you know, if you win, Armenia attacked Azerbaijan in the 90s. They started the war. There's actually no discussion about this here. They saw a chance to reunite with their lost territory that was uh, transferred to Azerbaijan during Stalin's rule, which was a political and strategical calculation on his side. But if you win, nobody, including yourself, really cares about how, because victory, almost by definition, doesn't stimulate you to you know, reflect on what went correctly. And it usually leads to a misattribution of casual links and creates a delusional understanding of the situation. If you win, it is all your accomplishment. But if you lose, there are external factors at play. And victory doesn't really make you think about those external factors. In fact, it doesn't make you reflect about anything at all, but defeat does. And this is exactly what happened in this conflict is that Armenia won very quickly, very early on, and then stopped, didn't care about how and why they won. Because when I talked to them, the very fact of victory is what mattered. And over the years, you know, they neglected their army, they neglected their modernization, made the disastrous strategical decision of having their survival only be based upon their cooperation with Russia. And that's exactly what Azerbaijan has not done. Azerbaijan reflected on its defeat, it created a trauma for them. This is what paved the way for such a cartoonish level of dictatorial system that's why they kept buying new weapons that's why they've been preparing for 30 years for this this was their moment and this is what i wanted to add i want to put this in the context of why a quick victory isn't always the best thing for a nation
2: i completely agree with bruno i think that what's currently happening in israel is also a good example of the same principle i wanted to say that what I find fascinating is that even though Azerbaijan is a pretty homogeneous country, over 90% of their population are Azeris who are Shia Muslim. They also have Christian population. They also have Jewish population. The Jewish population is huge and thriving. I was honestly pretty impressed how very well these minorities are included into the society. It's something very natural and I didn't feel any conflict. What was very interesting to me that when we went to a synagogue on Yom Kippur, there were many, many Christians. They just went there, take a look. It's the biggest Jewish holiday, so they wanted to see and share the experience. It was something they have probably never seen before. So they just went with their Jewish friends, which is something I have never seen in Europe before. I was surprised that even though the sense of nationalism is something that the regime puts huge emphasis on, everyone's included, like even the Jews, even the Christians from other post-Soviet republics, We've met quite a few Dagestanis. They didn't say they were Dagestanis, they were Lesbians. They were like different ethnic groups, but they all, to a certain extent, were identifying with the Republic. That was something I was quite surprised by. Of course, you can't tell if the people are auto censoring themselves to a certain extent, which is completely possible that they weren't as open with us as maybe we thought they were. But yeah, I was pretty, pretty surprised by that.
0: That's really interesting because it sounds like it's more of like a civic nationalism rather than ethnic nationalism, which I think might be a really part of that dictatorial system where you have a strong leader that's able to try to unite all the different different ethnic groups within the country as a way to kind of unify it, but at the same time like it's still a very autocratic system and that it's almost like Soviet Union where you do have a lot of peoples coming together and coexisting, but it's not like that's done in a bottom-up way, it's done in a really top-down way that does bring social cohesion but at the cost of a lot of political and cultural freedoms. I mean you might be able to have religious diversity, but it might not go as deep as uh, the political diversity that's really needed to have a thriving civic society.
1: Or- even if you look at the region, I mean, you can see it in Syria, to some extent or another, that the uh, Assadist government has tried to have this perspective of every different group in that itself is supported because his family comes from one of the minorities, the Alawites, very dictatorial, but at least somewhat secular nationalism. I wanted to ask a little bit as well about Baku, because we've spoken a little about the Jewish community in the Red Village. But also, there is a, you've mentioned it a few times passingly, but it's interesting because Baku is one of the big ways in which the Azerbaijani government tries to portray itself out to the world as a modern capital, as a capital that's closely connected to Europe in a lot of different ways. I think there was a Eurovision hosted there. It's a very industrious uh, centre. I think the largest KFC in the world is actually located in uh, Baku of all places. So yeah, what was that experience like? like in the city? What was your experience like within the Jewish community?
3: Chicken isn't meat, by the way. (laughs) 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 Emma, you can say You know that.
2: (laughs) Yeah, this was a huge struggle. So I'll start with the story and then I'll get back on track with the answer to your question. One huge cultural difference was I am vegetarian. They don't know what vegetarians mean. They were shocked by it. I think they were offended by it. They didn't get why I wouldn't eat meat by choice. If I am not poor, why wouldn't I? eat meat. So we really struggled to order something for me. Often when we ordered like a salad or something, there was chicken in it. And I was like, no, 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 sorry, I don't want meat. And they were like, chicken is not meat because they divide white meat and red meat and red meat is meat but white meat is obviously not meat. So they completely didn't know the concept of being vegetarian and not eating meat. When it comes to baku, baku is something very different from the rest of Azerbaijan. Like it's very modern you have these huge skyscrapers, you have expensive cars big highways, everything is so modern and big and it reminded me in a way of Dubai. It was very clean, especially in the center, but you still were able to see all the elements of propaganda because anywhere you went there were Azerbaijani flags, there were the billboards of Aliyev, there is this huge Aliyev Cultural Center, etc. It was a huge contrast to anywhere else where we traveled to because we rented a car and our car was Škoda. It's not the most expensive car.
1: But it is a Czech car.
2: It is a Czech car, indeed. In Baku, it wasn't anything special. We weren't sticking out. But when we drove anywhere else from Baku, we felt like we had Lamborghini or something. Like all people were, driving in Jiguliks, the cars had like broken glass, you would be even surprised that they were able to drive that car. And in Baku, everything is so modern, so clean, European in a way, but when you travel anywhere else, you feel like you are in a different country. The contrast is so big that you wouldn't believe that you are still in the same country. And even like the standard of living, it's so different. We were googling what the average income is, you wouldn't be able to survive with it in Baku. Anywhere else, I can imagine, it's possible. And also, like, if you have seen the pictures from Baku, whether that be the White City, which reminds of Paris, or whether that be the flame towers, or any other modern building, if you compare it with any other city, you feel like you are stuck in Soviet Union. Maybe even in Russia. Like, it's two different worlds, which cannot compare. Two different worlds.
0: I think that's a really interesting point actually just the land of contrasts you see when you have a city like Baku and a country like Azerbaijan. We haven't mentioned oil once and I think oil is an important thing to mention when it comes to Azerbaijan's relationship with Europe especially and that basically means that Europe is seeming to give Azerbaijan a free pass and of course there is a weird relationship where Azerbaijan's on the side of NATO. There's a whole lot of contradictions there especially given the US also supporting Kurds in northeast Syria and then you actually had two NATO aircrafts destroyed each other recently because of the sort of contradictions within those relationships where Turkey and Azerbaijan don't really seem to be getting along with the Kurds well of course not. Talking about Baku as something similar to Dubai I think is interesting in terms of thinking about it as an oil city and how oil has been used to kind of modernize one specific place and really give an appearance of what Azerbaijan is like that is so different the fact that you described it as European I think is also interesting and I think Zach's point as well about How it is part of Eurovision and like the kind of European cultural project, and how you have this country on the periphery of Europe that politically is so different from everything Europe claims to represent, but at the same time, because of these economic connections, is able to kind of get away with it in a way that is really, I think, important to call out the hypocrisy of because there's certain values that Europe claims to uphold that apparently don't really amount to much when it comes to economic partners that are seen as is important and they can't be pressured politically.
3: Just wanted to add to put these things into context that countries that support Europe with natural resources like gas and oil, none of them are bastions of democracy. If we have to switch and not use Russian gas, we will use gas from other autocratic regime. It's a juggle of you know choosing who will hurt us less in the long term. That's just my humble opinion. I just wanted to say it because I kept comparing Armenia and Azerbaijan, there's another comparison. You know, if you look at people of Baku, and I would even say Azerbaijan in general in comparison to Armenians are much more cosmopolitan there' as people much more open much more welcoming much more understanding of foreigners and foreign cultures and as you mentioned they feel like they are connecting themselves to this European cultural project by having their wish of closely integrating with Turkey which they perceive fully as Europe they're pursuing but as a country not an open country it's still it's a country where we had to as Europeans get a visa despite having having one of the strongest passports. Czech Republic is like top 10 or something. Azerbaijan is one of those countries where I needed visa. Armenia we don't need visa. Country for us is much more open. However the people they're not cosmopolitan. They're much more closed off. They hold together. They're very much like Jewish people. It takes time and discipline and patience to get inside of that cultural bubble. Once you burst the bubble they will welcome you and treat you as one of their own. When it comes to hospitality I have not met nicer people than Armenians. Despite sharing a table at a house of a former soldier who in front of me said that Hitler kind of had a point. He didn't know I was Jewish. Once he found out, you know, I and me using my Socratic irony as a tool of communicating with nations, uh, all went very well. It was a very interesting conversation. But you know, imagine like sitting at someone's house. This guy is hosting you, showing, giving you food. He's providing you with shelter, and but then he says something like this, and you're you're thinking that holy. But you know, it's important to by trying to not judge them and by trying to give them a. Space where they can talk, where they can feel safe expressing their opinion, they will also start to respect you more if you're not immediately like starting to play moralize them. And we came to a very nice agreement. I started to pinpoint how Jewish people and Armenians, there are a lot of parallels in our history. We've both survived, you know, a genocide. We have strong diasporic cultural space. And in the end, we're fine. We're still like, we're still in contact. And when these atrocities that are happening in Israel, you know, reach the Armenian news, he uh, checked in on me, despite being uh you know being anti-semite so it's just something i personally find fascinating
1: people are complicated
2: Yeah, I wanted to say that even though I completely agree with Bruno that Azerbaijan is a very cosmopolitan country and the people there are very open and they are kinda used to foreigners, I had this feeling mostly in Baku and then in Ganja. But when we were traveling, like when it came to villages or some cities which weren't as well known and as big, I felt like we were the only tourists there. We were as much an attraction for the locals as the city and they were for us many people were just tearing and they wanted to talk to us because they have never met not only a czech person but like central european person or eastern european person label it as you want i felt like this metropolitan vibe was mainly in baku and ganja anywhere more to the countryside i felt like they weren't counting on that tourists could actually get there and that they would be even interested to. The cities are not built in that way. They are not the beautiful, rich, Baku like pictures you see. That was the most interesting thing for me. And also when we were driving out of Baku, as we were driving through, we saw the oil wells every I don't know, 50 meters, every 100 meters, which was overwhelming. And that connects to how I mentioned previously, Baku was so clean. Only Baku was clean. But when we were driving around the countryside, when we were driving on the highways, it was so dirty. The way they take care of their environment, it's so bad. One day, we went for a trip to the Caspian Sea I felt like I was oily for like the next three days. The sea was so dirty that I couldn't get the oily something out of my body for next three days, which is also very important to mention because I feel like most tourists, when they travel to Azerbaijan, they visit only Baku, then maybe Ganja, but that's not how it works and how it's elsewhere in Azerbaijan. And I feel like the approach to taking care of their environment is also very crucial because it says a lot and it's something very prevalent in dictatorships.
1: It's been really great to be able to have you both on. So thank you very much for that. Uh, regarding talking about Armenia and Azerbaijan, we will have more people to speak to because we really are interested in the conflict, the situation, the region, how it impacts Jewish communities. This is just one of the many perspectives that we would like to bring to you. We can almost have a little, I think, trilogy of episodes about the
0: Caucasus. Just really grateful that you guys could come. And I think the sort of perspective you guys bring is really important because as an American, Jew and Americans in general were very culturally monolingual nation and I think that makes it difficult for Americans to really appreciate traveling in a way that I think a lot of Europeans are able to do when you actually speak languages that you can go into a community and actually talk to people. It's just such a different experience from the way most Americans travel and I think it's so beautiful that you can go into these communities and really get to know people and be open and I think it's so important and really is like the best of what I think Jews can do as a people, not just Jews, of course, anyone can do this, but like to really go between communities and build these bridges and connections and relationships that really let people see through this nationalist curtain that really blinds people from actually being open to a broader love of humanity and care for people. And I'm really grateful that you were able to come on and share your stories, because I think it really says a lot about the sort of contradictions within the region. Thank you.
3: Thank you for having us.
0: Thank you.